You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys, episode number 50 for Monday the 13th of February 2017. My guest on today's show is David Penny, the author of the Thomas Berrington Historical Mystery Series set in southern Spain during the final years of Moorish rule. Three books are currently available in that series, with a fourth, The Incubus, being released today, this very day, on the 13th of February. David is technical manager for Ally, the Alliance of Independent Authors. He's also part of the team that runs the Indie Author Fringe events three times a year, which I highly recommend and you'll have heard me talking about in these podcasts very regularly. When I spoke to David for the podcast, I started by asking him how old he was when the writing bug first struck. One of my first recollections of writing is I was nine years old sitting in the garden at home. And I was writing a story about spaceships and aliens. And I think that was probably the first thing. Um, But I think like most writers, you get the bug to read lots of things to begin with. And then you discover that there aren't enough books out there you want to read. So you end up having to write your own in the way that you want to have them. Uh, And so that's how you do it. You know, you just you just do that. But uh, yeah, I wrote and wrote and wrote for years. And then I suppose 15 or 16, when I began to really take it seriously and just wrote more and more and sent them off to fanzines and and they sent them back and said no thanks (laughs) (laughs) and what was writing then because i i can remember i started writing about the same age as you and it was basled and bond uh, paper pads that you got for the local shop and any typewriter i could get my hands on at that time is that how you were doing yeah yeah yeah. I, i i used to write yeah, I used to write in like legal sized um, books. I remember I found I've still got some actually here and I read them now and I think, oh, my goodness, my writing was really neat and really tiny in those days. <laughs> and now it's it's sprawling and I can't read it anymore. But uh, I was fortunate that my grandfather had a, a portable Olivetti typewriter, which he hardly used. So I kind of inherited that. Uh, and then I had a, a big old black sit-up-and-beg royal typewriter that I wrote most of my first novels on. And I, I was my more a typist than a, write, than a handwriter, I must admit. I always have been pretty much from the outset, and I much prefer to use the keyboard than put anything down with a pen and paper. And the composition process in those days was so much different to, to what it is <laughs> nowadays. You, you tell kids this and they just don't understand it. They don't know. Uh, We were talking just before we came on air about my first books. And I remember uh, I wrote the first book and sent it off. And my agent said, uh, this is great, but there's far too much um, gratuitous sex and violence in it. (laughs) I was way ahead of the curve. (laughs) (laughs) Fifty shades, you know, inspiring years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fifty shades of blue alien. Um, (laughs) But he he sold it in the UK, and then he said, I think we could sell this in America as well, so could you send me the um, flimsy carbon copy 
that you have. And I said, what's a flimsy carbon copy? <laughs> and I just used to type stuff out without any copies or anything. And it, it, I, I can't, I can't bit hardly imagine how we used to do it in those days. Um, because, you, you know, you had Tipex and you made a mistake. And then when you did the second draft, you had to type it all out a second time. There was no editing on the screen at all. It's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it, and it didn't seem to be onerous at the time. But looking back at it now, you think, how on earth did we ever do that? Yeah, it's so different now, isn't it? Definitely. Yes. Now, you, you just alluded there to the fact that you had some books published in your 20s, and I've got them up on my screen here on your website, <laughs> and they are so um, evocative of my my sci-fi-loving childhood. Uh, you know, these are taking me back to the, the, the Asimov days and the Arthur C. Clarks, um, which used to line the school bookshelves uh, when, I, when I was a kid. And these are published 1974, 75, 78, 79. So you're right in the heart of my my sci-fi years here. Um, just talk us through those books and how they came about, because they're, they're wonderful to look at. Yeah, um, they, they were just, the first one was just written straight off. Um, I was working in Oxford as a sub-editor for Pergamon Press. Uh, I dropped out of college twice. <laughs> Once obviously wasn't good enough. Um, it, was, it was the 70s, Paul. There was a lot of illicit substances going around. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I remember sitting, I sat in a bay window in, a, in an upper flat in Oxford and wrote the first draft of the first book, which was The Sunset People, um, and just bundled it up and sent it off to an agent, and he said yes. And then about three or four months later, Robert Hale said, yes, we will publish this. And in those days, it was... I, I, I was over the moon with it, but I got um, £200 advance, and I think that was it, you know, end of story. But this was the 70s, so £200 was a lot more than it would be these days. Where, where would you put that now? I know, I know it's, that's a really hard question, but are we talking, you know, 5000 do you think? Just, just oh, roughly. Oh, oh, good question, actually. I have no, I have no idea, Paul. I have no idea at all. No, I haven't. I haven't got a clue. I yeah. just wondered if you, if, you know, if we could put any kind of number on that. What did um, it feel like then? You know, what did I, it buy you in that, in, in 1974? I used, to, I used to be able to live for a whole year on more or less £200. Really? Yeah, fortunately, I lived with my parents, and, and <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't charge me rent or charge me for food. So it was just like money to spend on things and go out to the pub every now and again. So it was, uh, yeah, it was okay. It was fine, you know. But uh, and then the oh, towards the end, when I almost finished writing, I sold a translation into Germany, and that was five hundred pounds. Wow. And it was enough to get a uh, an engagement ring, and so we got married. <laughs> oh, lovely! What a lovely story that is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, each book I got two hundred pounds for, so I ended up with eight hundred quid plus the five hundred in my entire initial tra- trad publishing writing life. <laughs> and is the the engagement ring presumably is a permanent record of that? Is it? Or it hasn't got lost down a sofa somewhere. In, oh, in the oh it's still there. It's still there. It's a little bit more worn than it was. Oh, how um, wonderful! Though. What a lovely story that is. I never thought about it. Yeah, I suppose it is. <laughs> yeah. In fact, we bought an engagement ring and two pairs of walking boots. <laughs> and are the walking boots in the loft still, or have they long gone? Oh, the boots went years and years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you've got, well, on your website, you've got four of these books. Was That that was the total of it, was it? That was it, yeah. Four, four novels, uh, a short story in Galaxy magazine in the States, 
for which I got paid $300, but they never paid me. Oh, no. Still rankles, actually. It shouldn't do because, you know, it, but uh, it was I got a telegram to say, yes, we would like to pay you. I can't remember what it was, three cents a word or something. And it was $300. And then uh, I don't know what happened, but I never got a check or anything. But, you know, even paying by dollars, I, mean, I have enough trouble getting my dollars through my account oh, yeah. now, you know, PayPal conversions and things. Mm, mm. Uh, in those days, it was it 1970s, you know, late 70s, dollars would be quite a thing then. They would. Yeah, I don't even know how it would have done if they'd have sent me a check. I don't even know if, if my bank in the day would have accepted that check or not. Um, they'd have probably charged me $400. You know, <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I bet they would. So now what I'm interested in, though, is you see, you you've, you did in your 20s and in the 1970s something which most of us would aspire to, which is mm. to traditionally publish your books. And then from 1979, it all goes quiet. So what, so what, what happened? Um, I Like I said, I was a, a, a hippie dropout from college. And I'd, I'd got a kind of not a dead end job, but I was a school's technician. And it, this was sort of early, late 70s, early 80s, and computers were coming in just about. And I discovered I knew 20 times more than any other member of <laughs> staff how to do computing. And um, I, I started doing that. And then I, I began to do the Open University. So it kind of subsumed most of my time. And the writing kind of drifted away into into the background never forgotten but it, it wasn't there i wasn't doing it day day in day out i used to write the occasional thing and then probably for maybe 30 years from the mid 80s until the 2000s i did none at all and then i, I thought as i'm getting older I, I if i don't go back to what i still consider my first love which is writing I'll not go back to it at all. So I started to write various bits and pieces and, and put them up online to see whether I could still do it or not. And the response was fairly good. And so I picked it up again. But when I came back to it, I, I thought, well, I could probably get in touch with my agents uh, and decide, you know, try to pick that up again. But this was 2012, 2013, and the world had changed so much in the interim and i tell people i'm too arrogant and too impatient to go the traditional route anymore mm. i'm convinced i'm good enough and I, I just don't want to sit and wait 18 months or two years to go through the process of agent acceptance then getting uh, uh going the rounds of the publishers and then the publishers taking 12 months or more for your book to appear on the bookshelves uh, I'd, I'd much rather take control of my own destiny rather than place it in the hands of somebody else. So there's still a little bit of that law-breaking hippie in you, by the sounds of it. Oh, oh well, it is partly the hippie. It's not even the law-breaking hippie. It's just the hippie ethos of, you know, um, do what you want to do and, and do it your own way, really. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, me and me and Neil Young, we're still rebels. <laughs> <laughs> Now, before we move on to the self-publishing stuff, what, just let's make sure we park the traditionally published works. Were they earning for you in the meantime, or, or did, was it a case if you got the advances, they sat there, and, and, and that was it? That was it, yeah. And that was pretty much, I think, what most people had in the day, even some of the bigger names. You know, um, I was reading recently that John Brunner, who's one of my heroes of the time, wrote one of what I consider one of the best books of that era, 
uh, he he was he was hand to mouth very much. He used he used to have to write erotica under a pseudonym in order to keep you know keep the wolf from the door. So uh, most people just got a, 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 a an upfront payment, and that was it. We never got royalties, as far as I remember. Hardly anybody did. And what happens to those books? At what point do they they drop off everybody's radar and just sit there and they have no – the word value is not right, is it? But they're, they're not earning anything for anybody. Mm. Fairly quickly, to be honest. Um, and I think that's still the same in the traditional world because it's, it's, it's predicated entirely on bookshops and selling stuff through bookshops. Um, the trad publishers got into – digital pretty late in the day and i think they've still made a total cock up of it even this day um they're, they're trying to charge like 14.99 for an ebook when it first comes out and uh, their their whole idea of how the the business works is entirely skewed but it, back then i think it was about a two-year time period and then they just pulled the books and trashed them and that was it so when you came to indie publishing then, was your first stop to write something new or to maybe look at the assets that you'd got from the 70s? Write something new. Um, as you pointed out, in those days, everything was science fiction. I used to read science fiction almost exclusively, and I wrote science fiction exclusively. When I came back to it, I realised I didn't read science fiction anymore. <laughs> Uh, I think that, I think it had changed over the interim period. I, I was fortunate in that I grew up and I wrote towards the tail end of the golden period of science fiction. Um, I suppose it, it started out in the like, 40s and, and then went through to the 70s and late 70s. But after that, it went a bit different. There was still good stuff coming out. Another of my favorite books is Neuromancer by William Gibson. That is a work of genius, and that was kind of mid to late 70s. Um, but science fiction kind of moved into the background as a genre as well. It's picked up again since, but at the time it, it didn't have such a high profile. And I found that when I started to write again, I read crime, mystery and historical novels. And so that's what I started to write. <laughs> When you look back at those books now, they're, they're, they're books written by a 20-something, 23-year-old yeah. man. How, how do you yeah. feel about them when you read them back? They're crap. Oh, really? Even yeah. though they've been <laughs> through that traditional process? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't, I didn't get any editing input on those books at all. Nothing was done to them. They were proofread, and that was it. You know, just, I, I sometimes think that back in those days, the, the typesetters used to do the proofreading as they set them rather than anybody else. You know, I used to go, oh, no, I tell a lie. I, I've got manuscripts that have come back with proofreaders' marks all over them. Um, but, it, it, yeah, they're just they're, they're rubbish now. I, although I go back to them and I, I think – you know what it's like where they say when you've finished your manuscript, you should stick it in a drawer for at least six weeks. Yes. I've, I've now set the, left those books in the drawer for 45 <laughs> years. <laughs> so you, you do get this, this editorial distance from them. Um, and I think the writing is good, but I had absolutely no concept of plot. They're simply stream of consciousness from beginning to end. 
nothing particularly happens. There's no character arc. There's no story arc. Um, and I think part of that is there wasn't, there weren't the resources in those days that we have now. I mean, there's, there's so much on the internet and, and I'm in my office and behind me is a, a big bookcase and one entire shelf is devoted to writing craft books. Yes. And I don't recall ever seeing ever, nobody ever telling me, you know, you need to do, you need to concentrate on your craft. You, know, you need to get your plots. But I, I, funnily enough, I've gone back and I've read a bit of science fiction again recently, and I've realized um, I've resubscribed to fantasy and science fiction, and every couple of months I get a, uh, the latest edition drop into my Kindle. And I've realized that a lot of those even now don't have much in the way of plot. They're, they're ideas that don't actually have a plot as part of them. So maybe it wasn't so so bad as I thought. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested to know then, having having written science fiction, and obviously you know you've had a lifetime, haven't you, in between writing one set of books and coming back. Thirty years is a long time, and now you've come to um, historical mystery series, which is just a complete yeah. turnabout. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, when I started writing again, I realised that because when I wrote before, plot wasn't even on my radar. And I kind of analyzed this kind of books that I enjoyed. And I realized that I like books that are really tightly plotted with lots of things going on, not necessarily action, but something is happening in every single paragraph. And so that's what I tried to emulate. But historical, I started writing a, a kind of mystery, which it, <laughs> I might finish one day, but it, and it's, it's a kind of hybrid because the concept behind it is that there's a guy who can see into the future, but he can only see 10 seconds into the future. Oh, I like that. That's yeah. got me going straight away. I like yeah, that. Hmm. which is great because he's a bombardier in a Lancaster during the Second World War. Oh, it's good. I like that, David. And everybody loves to fly with him because he knows where the, where the flak is going to hit. Yes. And he tells them to avoid it. And then, yeah, but that I've, I've written most of that and, and it was actually going to be a series. Um, but it's just sitting on a shelf. And, and I wrote a, um, another crime book, which is also sitting on a shelf. And then, oh, four years ago, we were sitting downstairs with my wife and the two kids. And I just said, I don't know why. You know, nobody's ever written a, an historical mystery set in Moorish Spain in the 1480s. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's the last 10 years of the Islamic rule of Spain. And, and it, I thought it's just such a great period of history. And I, and I thought somebody must have done it because, you know, it's just, it's just such an exciting period. And I went and looked and nobody had. So, and, and the idea of 10 books in the series came to me straight away. The whole concept and the, the whole arc of the 10 books came. And I thought, oh, that sounds good. So I did a bit of research. Well, I did a lot of research and started to write the first one. And it went quite well. And um, I don't know if you know anything about the Harrogate Crime Festival, Paul. I, I know of it. It's on my radar. And one of these days I'm going. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I went, I, I'd finished the book and I went there and they have a thing on the first Thursday before the festival opens itself, and it's called the Dragon's Pen. All right, yeah. 
and it consists of a panel of four to six agents and publishers. And you stand up and you have two minutes to pitch to them. And I put my name in the hat and it got, it was the first name pulled out. And I, I know. And I totally panicked. And I've, I've done presentations for hundreds of people when I ran my business and it doesn't bother me at all. And I have never been so scared and nervous in my life. But I pitched and one of the agents, a lady called Jane Gregory, said, oh, that sounds really good. Send us the, the book. So I did. And it came back and they said, yeah, it is good, but it's not for us. And I, that made me think there's, okay, it's not for them, which means it's not good enough yet. Uh, it's the arrogance coming out again. Mm-hmm. So I, I sent it to an editor and, and that made a huge, huge improvement to it. And so now I, I, I work as though it's traditionally published. I have a structural editor. I have a proofreader. I have professional cover designers. And I go through the whole trad publishing process, but I do it all myself and hire in the resources I need. I want to dig a little deeper into this, if I may, because first mm-hmm. of all, in terms of your subject matter, um, southern Spain, the end of Moorish rule. That's mm. not something you just pluck out of nowhere. mate. You must have had some holiday experience or, or some kind <laughs> of life experience, surely. The, the only life experience I had, and that whether it comes from this or not, I don't know. Um, I went to Spain at the age of, I think it was 16, it may have been 15, on a school cruise. And we sailed from Liverpool, went across the Bay of Biscay, we stopped in Lisbon, and we stopped in Malaga and got in a coach. And I remember getting in the coach because there was a guy with a gun on the opposite side of the road. Oh, and three armed policemen descended on him and beat him up. Really? Then we, yeah, well, this was the days of um, uh, dictatorship, wasn't it? Of course, yeah. Uh, and it was sort of 65, 66. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got in this coach and we went to Granada to look at the Alhambra. And I took some pictures, and I do still remember that. But and we we came away, and it was like two hours. And, and my most abiding memory of Spain is the fact that at fifteen they let you buy beer, <laughs> which was great. <laughs> and and I didn't go back to Spain again until after I decided to write the books, and then we went back on some research trips. So again, a long gap between two things. Well, that, so I, don't, I don't know where it came from. I really don't know where it came from. No, I don't because you know it's it's like it's like a mastermind specialist subject uh, yeah. to me. It's so niche in terms of the time zone and the setting. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is this last that when I started doing the research, that last ten years was incredible because basically the the, the Moors destroyed themselves through political infighting. And, and it wasn't the Spanish who defeated them. It was the Moors who defeated themselves. And it's it just it, it, a, a hugely charismatic period in history from the, the Moorish side, yes. But also when you think about it, what Spain became as a result of that, which was probably one of the superpowers of the world, uh, alongside England, it, it, it eclipsed France. And they discovered the Americas. So, in fact, this is one of the things that came. I said it's a 10-book series. The last scene in the 10th book involves Christopher Columbus, who historically, uh, the, the, more, the Spanish walked in, Spanish king and queen entered the Alhambra Palace on January the 1st, 1492. 
On January the 2nd, Columbus walked through the gates and said, you've been messing me around for four or five, six years, promising me the funds to go and find the Indies, as he thought then. And I, I, I'm either going to go to Portugal or England and get the money from them, or you give it to me. And they said, we'll go then. And they threw him out. And he got as far as the, the gates of Granada and decided to turn back and ask again. And they said, yes. So that's actually one of the last scenes in the 10th book. Now, I've got to push about this Ted book series as well. <laughs> yeah. Because I've written a couple of trilogies, but Ted books is a real punt, isn't it? Uh, yeah. But, you know, particularly when it's not characters. Um, yeah. Well, I know, I know it, it is characters, but it's, you know, when it's not like a detective series where the, the characters, you could just put them into any um, situation yeah. that you want. Mm. You're, you're committed mm. to a historical timeline. You are, yeah, yeah, which works as well. And to be honest, the historical stuff I find fairly straightforward. What I find really difficult is coming up with crimes. So I've got to invent 10 crimes over 10 years, and that, that's going to be tough. Each one is, and each one is kind of has to fit into the society that was going on then, you know. Stuff. So, so the next book, which I'm already plotting, is going to be based on the Inquisition in Seville, which was pretty wild times, really. So that's going to be fun. But, it, yeah, it's difficult. It is difficult. Lots of source material there. And these aren't short books either. I mean, 300, 400 pages? Yeah, something like that. Each one is between – the shortest is 85K and the longest is 105. So, yeah, pretty substantial books. But you have to have to fit everything in because there's the history – there's the character arcs and then there's the, the murder mystery and the solving of it. And all three of those things have to twist together as seamlessly as you can make them in order to, to bring it together. Because it's, it's not like writing a, a modern crime police procedural where you don't have to explain anything. You have to put some of the historical detail in. And no DNA either in these. No, no, although I do have fun with things like that. <laughs> Little throwaway lines like, uh, you know, Thomas Barrington wished there was some way of identifying uh, people from the blood they'd left on a scene. <laughs> yes, maybe in 100 years. <laughs> that's right, yeah, that's right. So what does writing look like for you as a self-publisher, bearing in mind you are a veteran of the Olivetti typewriter? Yeah, yeah. I, I I just I write every single day of the year. I don't really take time off because I just enjoy doing it so much. Um, and even when we go on holiday, it tends to be somewhere I'm going to write about. So I, 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 I'm, having said that, I'm fairly lazy. So I don't start until maybe 10, 30, 11 in the mornings, and I usually finish by 4 o'clock. And I'll take an hour or two for lunch. So it, it's a fairly relaxed, but I'll do three between three and 5,000 words a day and push the first draft out within about six weeks. Oh, fantastic. That is fast. But all of that, it comes from, I will, be, so I have a, my editor says I'm the most organized writer she's ever dealt with because I have a spreadsheet that tells me when I'm going to send stuff to her nine months in advance. That's good. And, and it's, you know, I have, I have about six to eight weeks of plot development, six weeks of writing, another six or eight weeks of 
my editing of the doc, of the manuscript, and then I'll send it off to her for the structural edit. And it comes back, and I've just got the fourth book back now, and that's going off to the proofreader uh, first week in January, and it's already on pre-sale in Amazon, and it comes out February the thirteenth. Well, February the thirteenth is the day that this interview is running, so we are talking on the day. Fantastic, fantastic, yeah. It's actually our, uh, our wedding anniversary, which is. Uh, why I chose February 13th. Well, what a brilliant day for your podcast episode to run. That's fabulous. Well, no, I spotted it when I was just reading around beforehand and thought, oh, how, how perfect is that? Have you, have you constructed that so it goes on the same day? But no, it's perfect. So this will be running on that day. So uh, we will know then, you know, how it's got, how it's going, which is fantastic. Yeah. And of course, then I, I also have to do all the, the sort of alliance of independent author stuff, Paul, which, um, which you know about because you've had a couple of great, presentations from you for that well i'm going to going to talk to you about that role a little later because um i'm a big fan of the alliance of independent authors so we need to pick your brains on that Uh, but (laughs) before that i need to ask you about your wonderful wonderful covers that you have on these books Mm -hmm. and you've won an award i notice as well on your website for these because they are quite uh stunning who does those jessica bell just mm -hmm. um I, I did use the first covers I used for the first two books. I went to a firm called De Monza, which you probably know about. I've heard about them, yes. Based in South Africa. Um, I did a lot of sort of looking around and deciding, and I, I knew I wanted kind of – initially I thought I wanted fairly gritty covers. And I, had in, I knew in my head exactly what I wanted them to look like. And the trouble with that is I'm not a designer, so they did what I asked. And – after a while, I thought, these don't really scream historical fiction. And so I'm losing readers because they're, they're looking at them and they think they're something else that they're not. So I went to, and I knew Jessica as a friend. Uh, I've met her at various events and we get on really well. And she came highly recommended. So I said to her, I want three books done. And they all have to be you know, similar. So there has to be a common thread so that the series hangs together and they have to smack the reader around the face and say, this is historical fiction. So we did a bit of toing and froing, and then I chose the final um, format. And she's great. She's just, she's really quick. She knows exactly what she's doing now and exactly what I want. And, and, and fantastic. I love them. They have a very strong uh, brand. And I think that's really important in self-publishing, isn't it? When you're having to do all the work yourself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the the point that everybody's going to miss, which they don't realise, is that they're numbered at the top, but it's Arabic numbering. Oh, really? Oh, that's clever. That, that's what uh, that's, 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 <laughs> let's have a closer look. Hang on, that's what there's, that a, there's a little are. bit in a symbol in a in a circular symbol, and the numbers are, are one through. Obviously, you know, one you can see, but two, three, and the fourth one she's just done is is you can't tell it's four. But, uh, they look very uh, strong on the page there. Um, yeah. do, do you do paperbacks as well, or are they just Kindles? I do paperbacks, but I don't say uh, – well, I would say 95% of my sales come through Kindle. The paperbacks are, are there simply because some people refuse to read ebooks, and so they're there for that group that wish to have the paperbacks. Um, I didn't think I sold many, and then I, I – <laughs> I looked recently, and I'm selling more than I thought. I've fun. discovered I'm also selling I'm also selling stuff through Waterstones now, which I didn't know. Um, but I, I keep getting little 
royalty checks from books I've that have gone out through Waterstones, and which is weird. So that's I haven't done it. Does that presuppose that you're going through Ingram Spark or are these yes. Create Space? Oh, right, uh, okay. Ingram, it, both Ingram Spark and Create Space. I, I, I'm a big believer in um, Create Space for the immediacy of somebody can look on Amazon, see it as a paperback, and it says in stock. And then Ingram Spark, uh, I, I remember I went into foils and some guy gave a talk about how indies could get their books into foils. And so when he'd finished, I went up to him because I had a, I always have a copy of my book with me. And I said to him, well, this is mine. And he said, oh, yeah, it looks good, covers good, sounds fine. And he scanned it through the system and he said, no, thanks, because it came up as a Create Space book. Oh, you've had that experience yourself. Yeah, mm. yeah. So that's, that's when I went to Ingram as well. And you don't get that anymore. Um, in fact, my, it's book is stocked in libraries as well. So, um, and I think a lot of the sales I get are library copies now. That's very exciting. If you're in libraries and, and Waterstones as well, that's fabulous. It's- yeah, yeah. But I don't do anything on the on the print book side at all. Like it just sits there, and and people will pick up it, pick it up if they wish to. I noticed that you had a little try of audio as well with the first book, The Red yeah. Hill. How did that yeah. go for you? Fantastic. I love it. Um, it's it's on Audible now. It's been out almost a month, and I've sold 59 downloads, wow. which I thought was pretty good. Yeah, it is. It's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a couple of days. And so I've commissioned the guy who does uh, did the first one, and he's going to start on the second one. And that should be out more or less the same time as the fourth book comes out. So I've decided I'm going to pay him to do the to do the whole series. Let's talk about that because you're paying him, so you're not doing yeah. revenue share, which many uh, which yeah. many people go for. I didn't go for revenue share either. Mm. Uh, the reason I'm paying him is is I'm not sure about revenue share. I wasn't sure whether people would want to do revenue share when I first started looking at it. Um, they probably would now because my sales have increased quite significantly, but. Uh, you have a slightly less control over it. And being the control freak that I am, I wanted to have that level of control again. Yes. Um, so I, I decide, and, and I've, uh, over how many years have I been doing this? Three or four years. I, I have I've built up, I call it my slush fund. Mm. It's all the income I've received from book sales and everything else, and I stick it in a separate bank account. And don't really spend much of it. And so it just sits there. And I, I decided, yes, I will pay this guy. And I think it was $3,200 to do the whole thing. And that's the his narration plus the um, mastering. And he does it by how long the book is. So the next book, which is the shortest one, is going to be slightly cheaper. And, and I wanted to – I thought, well, if nobody – I'm willing to take a risk on myself, and having done that, I will get a higher return as a result of that. And once again, arrogant enough to think I'm going to sell enough copies to make it worthwhile, and it looks like that's going to happen. And so it it was a no-brainer for me that I would rather have a higher royalty payment and put the money up front in order to do it, as I do with all of the books. So it costs me somewhere like a thousand pounds per book in editing, cover design, proofreading, everything else. And that's I consider that an investment in my future income. 
Now, it's interesting that you say that because I was going to ask you about this. You're in for quite a lot of money before we even get started. And I think a lot of people, I've done a few uh, talks on self-publishing, and a lot of people balk when I tell them how much money I'm putting up front that I'm betting on myself. Um, And and, and they don't really like that idea. They want somebody else to take all the risk with that. But Mm. you're creating, I mean, you know this more than anybody because you've got books that are sitting there from 1974. These things are assets, aren't they? Exactly, exactly. So, so when I when they finally put me six feet under, my kids will inherit my backlist for the next seventy years. So, great, you know, they, they'll they'll be fine, hopefully. <laughs> and we were watching on on the Sci Fi Channel. It was um, I'm just trying to think. Was it an Arthur C. Clarke um, uh, uh, book that had been originally published in the 1950s? And I remember mm. saying to my, my wife, you know, that, that's 1950s. And somebody's yeah. just picked that up now and turned yeah. that into um, yeah. a, a series, you know, and that's going to make mm-hmm. a lot of money. And the yep. family or the, the state's going to get that. How amazing is that? I know it is. Yeah. yeah. It, it's endless, isn't it? I remember see Joanna Pe- going to something by Joanna Penn when I first started out. And I wanted to work out how to do self-publishing. And, and she's, she's the, the guru that you always go to. And she said, you know, it, it, it sounds like it's a lot of money to invest in yourself or into your art. But if you believe in it, then that is something that is going to last forever. It's not something that's, you know, that's the thing, the difference between, I think, indies and trad market. I, I met a lady who was published by, I can't remember who, one of the big six publishers. And they dropped her after two years because she wasn't selling well enough. And all she'd ever gotten out of it was her initial advance. And I think she got two grand, she told me. And that was it. Whereas, and, and she was, I, I meet a lot of trad authors, and, and they kind of quiz you and say, well, can you explain to me what, how these indie things work? And, and you, they say, yeah, yeah. And they say, and how much do you get for a book? Is, I, I've heard it's about 10%, isn't it? And I say, no, I get 70% of the sale price. And she said, no, 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 that, that's not right, because my publisher told me you don't get that much. And I said, yeah, I get 70%. And they, they've got this I- weird idea that, you know, you get the same sort of royalty return that trad publishers are paying their authors, and, and they don't believe it when you tell them how much we actually earn. <laughs> and you, of course, can compare. And I'm taking yeah. it that you wouldn't go back to trad. No. There, there's one... There's only one reason I would go back to trad. Uh, I, I told you I go to Harrogate Crime Festival. I also always, always go to Crime Fest in Bristol. And that they run a an indie author panel, which is nine o'clock on a Sunday morning. It's you know it's the worst slot of the entire conference, and it, it's staffed by indie writers. It, it's you know there's five indie authors who do it, and Joe Penn used to be the chair chairperson of this. And then a couple, a couple of years ago, she said, I can't be bothered anymore. Do you want to do it? And I said, oh, yes, please. <laughs> so, in fact, I didn't get to chair it because they chose somebody more famous, but I was on the panel. But even though I was on that panel last year, I, I applied for a place on Crime Fest author panels this year, and they said, no, because you're an indie. We don't publish. We don't let indies appear on panels other than on that indie author panel. And that's the only reason I might take a trad deal, but not in its entirety, is because then your publisher gets you places on panels. And that, ups, that increases your profile 
and your visibility. So I did think I have a, a, a contemporary serial killer police procedural plotted. It's a trilogy, Paul, which will please you. Oh, delightful. Uh, delightful. <laughs> I love things that yeah. come in threes, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I might I might pitch that to the trad market just just for that reason, so that I can get onto speaking panels. I was reading a, a recent article that you wrote for the Alliance of Independent Authors talk, talking about sort of the things we're talking about now. And you mentioned that being an indie is, is a mindset and yeah. an attitude. And I've had a recent experience with, with, um, the traditional industry that has made me realize that re- indie really is a state of mind. And when you say about being arrogant, I don't know whether it's arrogant, but it, it's a, it's, it's a very strong reaction against their attitude i yeah, think and, and I, I agree and i'm definitely an indie this experience has made me realize how much of an indie i am in my attitude and my mindset <laughs> so that really resonated with me yeah yeah it is i mean joanna penn calls us authorpreneurs i can't even pronounce it but it's this i know exactly what she means it's and you alluded to it earlier with a lot and i was going to tell you i was at the historical novel conference it's all these conferences i go to you see and there was a, a a session with agents speaking, and some of the authors are so desperate to get a traditional deal, they are signing up for absolutely anything. They're sign- the, one woman said, oh, I, I signed, I got, I've got a book deal, and I've signed this contract, but I can't find it anymore, and I don't know what it says, and I think, don't think it's a very good contract, but I can't find a copy of it anymore. <laughs> and, and everybody just, some people thought, oh, that's fine, because I will sign anything to get a trad deal. And people are, are giving away their future rights and their future income without even thinking about it because they, are, they want to have that validation. People want validation. I think all writers want validation, but my validation is reviews and, and book sales. And that's the, all the validation that, people should need but they don't they want somebody to rubber stamp and say yeah we're going to publish that you know we're, we're going to accept it and take it on and you'll get a lot less money than if you did it yourself but you know you can say i've been published by one of the big six and i think that's awful really you also made another comment in this article which i, I totally agree with it's something I, I said myself in the last couple of weeks which is i think that the clever traditional authors should be watching the indies and they should be yes. making the offers early when they see yes. them igniting yeah they should be they should be um funnily enough one of the few people that do that and obviously they know about it is amazon's imprints yeah they're good aren't they aren't they yeah um i've met a lot of people just recently who started out as indies got some sales momentum behind them. And the next thing they know, there's somebody on the other end of the phone saying, oh, I'm from Thomas and Mercer. We'd like to make you an offer for your book. And uh, it's interestingly, the people I've met that do that are not making as much money as indies. What, what I find is, is very interesting about this situation is that from, if I were a traditional author, um, when you, when you invest in a book and an author, you're taking a punt. It's like Dragon's Den. Mm. You, you, you're mm. investing a certain amount of money and hoping that some of it's going to fly and you're going to get your girl on a train, uh, out, out mm. of that. Whereas if you're yeah. watching, if you're watching Amazon, if you're watching self-publishing, you can actually back winners all the time. You can, you can, yeah. And, and I mean, trad publishing has picked up on some, in the authors and 
um, I think it was Fifty Shades of Grey in the book initially. Yes, it was, yeah. I think yeah. it probably was, yeah. And she's not done too badly since. So they should be, but I don't think they are, not in any meaningful way. Um, I, I, th- I, think, I think the general consensus amongst the traditional publishers and amongst traditional agents and everything else is that indies are doing it because they're desperate. There's still this feeling that it is vanity publishing and they still haven't quite got over that. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And they need to wise up mm. fast, I think, or they're, yeah. they're going to miss a trick. Uh, are, yeah. <laughs> One of yeah. the things we haven't talked about is marketing so far. Mm. And, you know, how, So it's all right writing a book. When you were traditionally published, you just handed that over and let somebody else uh, do it for you. You didn't have the internet in those days, of course. No. So how, as an indie publisher, do you get your books out there and into the hands of readers? Yeah, I'm terrible at marketing. Uh, well, I'm not anymore, but I was awful. I didn't do it. I have a presence on Twitter, a presence on Facebook. I have a uh, a website, and that's about it. Uh, I, I, but I, I was always looking for a way of doing it, and I've I've known people um, who swear by Twitter and make significant sales through that medium. Other people think Facebook is great. Others will look for a mailing list and so on. And I'm aware of all of these. And I've sort of dabbled and tried and never really made any headway. So uh, I did a, a post for Joel Penn recently, and I, 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 I'm quite open about it. And I, last year, I averaged about 20 sales a month. And then I discovered uh, Facebook ads. And I'm now averaging something like uh, 2,000 books a month. Wow. Just through Facebook ads. And I love them because it's, it's, it costs you money. It's like you said before about investing in yourself. I'm spending a not insignificant sum on Facebook ads, but I am getting back three times that amount every month. So it, it, it's a no-brainer to me to, to put that money in, you know. And are you selling directly? See, I've, I've gone through um, Mark Dawson's Facebook ads course. And yes, I, that's what I did, yeah. Well, I, I found it excellent for uh, lead building. So I'm, I'm very happy with the <laughs> turn it on, turn it off lead building. <laughs> but what <laughs> I haven't managed to do is to convert that into, or I don't feel like I've converted it into sales, not to the yeah. level that you're doing. So how, how have you done that? I, I, sk- I skipped the lead building, funnily enough, um, and I still haven't done that. But oddly, my mailing list has gone up as a result of doing direct sales. I don't know why. uh, Well, I I think, I don't know if it's because I ran an IT business for 25, 30 years and and I was used to selling to people, but uh, or whether I was just lucky in, in how it came about. But first four months, four or five months of doing Facebook ads, I lost money. One month I lost more than I could really afford to lose, and I pulled the plug on them, like a lot of people do. I, I mean, your experience is not unfamiliar. The majority of people, I think, dip a toe in the water of Facebook ads and, and get badly burned and pull back again. So I, I sat down and after three or four months, four or five months, thought, yeah, I'm not really making my money back, so what am I doing wrong? And tried this, tried that, and came. I, I was lucky and I came up with an ad that worked. And that went live in June of this year. Uh, 
And that that kick-started my sales hugely. So it's almost an exponential growth in the last six months. And really, it all comes down to, I've, I've written it down on a pad of paper here, simplicity sells. People try to do too much with a Facebook ad. But people remember that these are coming up on people's pages and you either grab their attention in probably a tenth of a second or you've lost them for good. So you need an image that will reach out of the screen and grab them by the throat and say, look at me, I'm a great book. And then that's all you need. You don't need words. So I've, I've cut back on my words now. I used to write quite a big bit of copy, but now I've three lines is all the copy I write and a link to your book. And that, and, but what you have also have to have is the link, the, the Facebook ad has to match your book page when they land. I've seen people do great ads and then you click on the link and the book page has got nothing at all. It feels totally alien to what the ad said. So there has to be this continuity and it, it is trial and error and it doesn't work for everybody. It doesn't work for all genres. And in fact, I don't think it's meant to work for historical mysteries. And it's, it's, I'm not getting the like huge multi mega returns that a lot of people are doing, but I'm very satisfied with the returns I am getting. And, and I intend to be that to be my main um, marketing effort because it doesn't take any time, Paul. I spend five minutes every morning seeing how much I've earned, how much I sell. And I've got a big spreadsheet and big on spreadsheets. And it shows me what my return on investment is, how many borrowers I've had, how many sales I've had, what the trend is in terms of both advertising cost and income. And it, that takes me five minutes a day. If I was, if I was trying to get <clears throat> sales through Twitter or Facebook, it would take significantly longer than that. There is an excellent case study with you from uh, Joanna Penn's website. I'll put that on your resources page at the end of this interview because uh, you detail everything in there. And um, for some reason, I missed that because I hang on to every word that Joanna says. As I know, she's fantastic. She's fantastic, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so that went under my radar for some reason because that's a brilliant article. Yeah, right. So I'll, I will link to that and uh, make sure it's on the show notes so people don't have to go hunting. It's very, Great. very good, very, very step-by-step. Um, I, I'm aware that we've been talking for quite a while, so I must talk to you about the Alliance of Independent um, Authors mm-hmm. because you're very involved in that. Can you talk to us about how you got involved in it and what you do with them? Yeah, I can't remember how I got involved in it. <laughs> you, you found um, a, a shilling at the bottom of your beer or something. Oh, I think I probably did. Um, I was. I thought they'd been going for like 10 years, but I think it's it's only about three or four years that Orna, set it, Orna Ross set it up. So I, I probably joined fairly early on. And I think it was almost certainly through um, going to one of Joanna Penn's early courses that she mentioned it. I'd always been looking for <laughs> some organization that that was for indie authors, uh, somewhere that is like a home for us to go to and talk and, and help each other out. Uh, it's my old hippie ideals. I, I like the idea of other people helping each other out. And I came across Ally, and I think I joined pretty much immediately. And the great thing about it I discovered is that um, because they have partner members, those partners offer discounts to Ally members. And within the first year, 
I'd saved my subscription to Ally in discounts from using the services of people who are partner members. And I think I've done that every single year since. Fantastic. So it doesn't cost me anything to be a member, even though I pay my annual subs, um, simply because I get more than that back in, in the services that I'm buying in. Uh, and I, I just thought it was great. So, that you know, you have the closed um, forums and, and you can ask basically any question you want. And there's always somebody there that will help you out. And then I, I, after a while, I sort of, somebody must have noticed that I was doing stuff. And then I, I probably I met Orna Ross. That's, and then again, another thing I'd gone to. And she said, oh, I'm having trouble with my IT issues. And I said, oh, I used to do that. And she said, oh, could you help us out? So I said, yeah. So I ended up fairly rapidly being IT manager for the Alliance <laughs> Independent Office. <laughs> uh, and then we started running. And then she said, oh, we're doing this conference, online conference. So we, we need some help with that. So I started doing that. So I'm now also um, one of the three members of who organized the um, – Indie Author Fringe conferences, which come out three times a year. So, yeah, I do that. I write and I do that, and then I go on holiday, and that's about it, Paul. <laughs> it's a lot of work, isn't it? You know, I've, I mean, I'm 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 one of the lovers who occasionally just sends over a bit of video to you. And I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of work with this because you you've got a lot. It's yeah. like herding cats, isn't it? Trying to get that. Together. Oh yeah, yeah. Trying, trying. You're one of the, you're one of the good guys, Paul. <laughs> trying to. You know what it's like trying to deal with authors. They're not the most reliable of people. I think most authors are. It, uh, herding cats would be great. That yeah, would be easy in comparison. <laughs> and you just end up chasing people all the time. And, and, and there's always some people who never um, deliver. So I remember the first year we did this, it was one minute to midnight, and somebody's piece was due to go live, and they'd only delivered it at quarter to midnight. Oh, my goodness. And it was a 7.6 gigabyte video because <laughs> people just record them and don't think about it. And they've got super fast broadband over in the States. So I was trying to reduce the size of this small enough to allow me to upload it. And I think it went up 30 seconds. It hit the, hit the screen 30 seconds before it was due to go live. So there's a lot of that goes on. And, but it's, it's kind of intense but short-lived. So I think each one takes us about a month to 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 really do. Um, and my job is is the easiest of all. Orna has the tough job because she has to approach everybody and say, please, please would you do something for us for this conference? And uh, I, I, she's got some great people coming up for next year, I can tell you. But the value is just huge. And, and whenever I'm talking about it, I just say, I, I was like, you know, I saw the Alliance of Independent Authors. I thought, this, I'm not even going to think about this. This is absolutely something I have to join. And, yeah. and the value, value is immense. If you only just turn up for those three fringes, the yeah. learning and the resources and the knowledge that's shared in those is just worth it yeah. for that alone if you don't do anything else. I know. And, and the quality, I mean, you know, we've, we've got people like Mark Coker on there and, and uh, you know, the, the guys who invented indie publishing, basically. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and they're giving their, their knowledge and their experience for free. And, and if, if, if you go and look at the, the back issues of those conferences, there is so much good stuff on there, you know. You, I think everybody ought to go and look it through. I, I'm lucky I get I get previews of all of this stuff before anybody else yes yes so so, so i'm always ahead of the curve I, in fact i did um we did a, 
I did an interview this year with the guy who runs um, a firm called Squirrel. Don't know if you ever come across it, S-Q-U-I-R-L, which is which is actually a word for the descend as you get in in fancy calligraphy. And it's brilliant because what it does is that as you're traveling around, it's an app for your phone. And as you're traveling around, it will ping and say, oh, you're in Oxford. Did you know this is where Morse was written? Or you're in a particular pub and it will say, this is the pub that J.R.R. Tolkien used to drink it. Oh, fabulous. And so I got I got in early on this one because it was still in beta. So I put all my books up. So when people get to Granada in Spain, it will say, oh, did you know that this is where the Thomas Barrington historical mysteries are set? Oh, how lovely. <laughs> and you can put your covers up there and buy links and, and uh, little snippets of text. So you can put an example of when somebody's going through the Alhambra Palace. Uh, a piece from my book will come up on the phone. And, and I've, you know, I, I found out about that before anybody else because I interviewed this guy when I was in Frankfurt. Fantastic. It's like Pokemon Go for books. That's exactly what he calls it, actually. Oh, really? really? Yeah, that's, he says, I couldn't, I couldn't explain the concept to anybody. And then I said, oh, it's Pokemon Go for books. And everybody said, ah, right, I get it now. <laughs> that's a great <laughs> and it idea. Is exactly it, yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. We've, we've been talking for nearly an hour, so we, we do need to bring this interview to a close. It's been absolutely <laughs> fascinating um, speaking to you. The, um, now, um, the day that this runs, your fourth Thomas Berrington historical mystery book is released. So mm. congratulations uh, on that. Um, give it a plug. It's called um, The Incubus, um, which is quite funny because my uh, the guy who does my audiobooks thought that was a female demon. And I had to point out that, no, that is an, a succubus. An incubus is a male demon. Uh, and he said, oh, right, I do feel stupid now. Uh, Please, you didn't it, test me on that, actually. I might have said something similar. <laughs> yeah, I might have to put a little note in the beginning to explain what it is. Um, it's set in, in Andalusia, as all the others are, but this time we've got a ronda. I don't know if you know that, but it's an amazing place. It sits atop a 300-foot cliff. The whole of the town is surrounded by these 300-foot cliffs, and it was meant to be impregnable. But in 1486, it fell to the Spanish. And I take my main character plus his six-foot buddy, who's a eunuch, and his, his girlfriend rather than his wife, although that might change. And they start to solve crimes in, um, in Ronda during the Spanish siege. And so you, you, you twist to get you weave together the historical reality together with uh, a very faint patina of what was going on. And you, you mix it in with a, a, a murder mystery and how somebody solves it and how the characters interact with each other. Because it's very much a buddy, uh, buddy movie as well. <laughs> It just occurred to me, you don't get to write your holidays off against tax, do you, for research purposes? Yeah, of course you do, yeah. Well, my half, anyway. So so I get my flight fares and uh, accommodation back and everything else, yeah. That's you know, it's fascinating. I just ended, I've just done a thriller trilogy, my first thriller trilogy, and they, they end up in Spain, which is where I like to go. And I was just thinking, yeah. do you know what? I'm going to park that there. And if I come back yeah. to it, I might start writing those visits off as tax <laughs> for <laughs> research. Science fiction, Paul, is it's very difficult to claim back trips <laughs> exactly, to <exactly, yeah. laughs> Until Elon Musk or is it, you know, does something amazing, yeah. you know, uh, yeah, yeah, we're a bit stuck with that one, aren't we? Or Richard <laughs> Branson. That's right. That's right.
But it's worth it's worth mentioning though, isn't it? Because I know, and again, I know Joanna Penn's mentioned this. You know that if you are researching um, uh, locations, uh, mm. and you are working abroad. This is this is something that you can offset against tax for research purposes. Mm. Mm. Yeah, as uh, and I don't think a lot of writers know every single book or journal you buy, you can offset against tax. Oh really? Oh. Yeah. I went I went to a talk once by a, a firm of accountants, and they specialise in doing tax returns for authors. And they said, everything you read can be offset against tax, whether it's fiction or craft books or whatever, because you're a writer and it's all research, which is great. Wow. That's worth knowing. Mm? My accounts Mm. will look very different next year. Indeed. Yeah, indeed. (laughs) We're running businesses and we have to be mindful of these things. We are investing in ourselves, in our own futures, aren't we? Exactly. Now, um, so really good luck with with book four. I really hope the launch goes very, very well. It looks wonderful. It's available for pre-sale as we're speaking now. Um, Where can people find out more about you? Because you are present on the web. You've got a really good web. I am, yeah. Um, I'm on Facebook. So if they search, uh, I think it's David Penny author. So my Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash David Penny author. They can find me on the web at davidpennywriting.com and I'm on Twitter's at David Penny with an underscore at the end. All one word, just with an underscore at the end. Thank you for listening to this week's self-publishing journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.